Good evening and welcome to El Oso Pumar Takes. This is our 250th take live from the Alec Bradley Lone Star Studio of Azel, Texas. I'm your host, Bear Duplessis, as always, and I'm so proud, so pleased, and so privileged to be with you all tonight. This is going to be a fantastic show. It's a milestone, and you know what we do with milestones here on El Oso Pumar Takes. We bring in some of the best, brightest, legendary and unbelievable people in this industry. We do that every week, but we try to make it extra special on Milestones, and I believe we've accomplished it for our 250th take. Before we get to formal introductions of our guest of honor tonight, uh, we do have to thank the people that make this show possible. That, of course, is our sponsors, and tonight's show is sponsored by Drew Estate. Drew Estate has done it again with one of their most favorite cigars, previously offered in only 50-count boxes. The, the They have done it again with switching new 25-count boxes for the Liga Privada, Nasty Fritas, replacing the 50-count boxes. Yes, now available in 25-count boxes, the smaller box size creates a friendlier presence for retailers' valuable humidor shelf space, while at the same time providing a more economical value for consumers and customers. Presented in a unique a uh, short pyramid vitola at its widest point, Liga Pravada Unico Siri Nasty Fritas features the same dark, rugged, and flavorable Connecticut River Valley Broadleaf, number one dark kappa and plantation-grown Brazilian Matafina Capote that Drew Estate uses for Liga Pravada number nine cigars. Like Liga Pravada Unico Siri Papas Fritas, the Nasty Fritas Tripa is blended uses leftover tobacco trimmings created in the making of Liga Pravada number no. nine and Liga Pravada T52 cigars. So check out your Drew Diplomat retailer today for a more economical and better uh, better size for the retailer in the 25 count boxes uh, offered only at Drew Diplomat retailers. So the Nasty Fritas is now in 25 count boxes. Get them today at your Drew Diplomat retailer. And welcome everybody. This is our 250th take. And without further ado, it is it is my honor to welcome in one of the finest, finest people of this industry that we love so much. Without further ado, sponsored by United Cigars, Smoke One Today, and smoke, uh, Start Living United, Mr. Manuel Quesada of Quesada Cigars. Manolo, how are we doing tonight? Well, thank you. First, first of all, thank you, thank you for having me. It's an honor and a privilege as well. Happy to be here and doing well so far. Wonderful, wonderful. I think we we can't let the show get started, Manolo, without just uh, just paying tribute to uh, how kind-hearted and amazing you really are. I think most people who've met you understand this, but you're going you're doing a real extra sacrifice today, tonight for me. But it's actually morning where you are. You're uh, what did you say? It is now four thirty, uh, a little past four thirty your time, correct? A.M. Yes, sir. 4.30 in the morning. Believable. I still can't believe uh, you agreed to do this show knowing you'd have to get up this early. But thank you so much for uh, blessing me uh, on this milestone to, to be able to share a conversation with you uh, on the show. is just uh, it's, it's a dream come true, Manolo. Thank you so much. My, my pleasure, Bear. So um, we always kick things off here. Um, it, it, um, with uh, a little bit of a tradition, I, I told you a little bit about this before we got started, and uh, the, how we do things here is we uh, actually um, will, um, uh, I have my guest of honor pick my cigar for me. So I have a couple of selections here for you to choose from. I think one's pretty appropriate, but I'll let you do the choosing and I won't sway you. So we've got a couple of, of 
Quesada Cigars, the 40th anniversary, available yes, in the Toro size. Okay. Um, and I also have the Selección España in the Robusto okay. size. Okay. And then I have three variations from the beloved and heralded Casa Magna brand, uh, brand, which we'll be talking about later, of course, which is the Casa Magna Colorado, the Robusto. I also have the Liga F Casa Magna in the Toro. And the newest uh, member of the Casa Magna family, of course, I have the Casa Magna Connecticut also in a Robusto. So um, the choice is yours, Manolo. What are we going to be smoking tonight? What am I going to be smoking well, tonight? Well, I, I have one of each of the ones you mentioned of oh, the wow. Casa Magna in front okay. of me. Uh, I would I would suggest we start with the Liga FA. Okay. I'll Sounds finish my Reserva uh, Privada in a moment, and I'll light up my uh, Liga FA momentarily. Perfect. I know you re- you released this. Uh, it's going to be two years come come this summer that this was cigar was released. I was a little late to the party. Um, I didn't get to try one uh, until uh, shoot. Um, you know. Last year, sometime actually, so it's been about a year since uh, since it's been released and everything. And I just thought this was uh, an inc- uh, incredible uh, addition to the Casa Magna family um, and a, a, a wonderful cigar. Um, it's uh, it's the first Casa Magna, like I mean, obviously the Connecticut came out last year, but it was the first Casa Magna, uh, I guess, extension, if you will. Uh, you know, after after the Domus Magnus and everything. Um, it had been quite some time since you didn't made any additions to the brand, correct? Yes, sir. The first was the Colorado, of course. Mm-hmm. Then came the D Magnus, and now the third and the was the elite, the Liga which we changed and we made it in Dominican Republic. Okay. So it's a Casa Magna made in Dominican Republic, in the style and tradition of the Casa Magna flavors and and. Uh, perception that you get in your palate. So it, it was a welcome addition to the family. I love the story of Casa Magna. I know we're going to get into it here later and everything, but um, I, I kind of, I had a, I had an interesting question uh, to kind of kick us off with. I mean, here, uh, uh, where it is today, it's tomorrow where you are, but uh, it's still mother's day over here uh, on, on my side of the world. And uh I was, yes, I was thinking about this. So happy Mother's Day to all the mothers out there. But um, I was thinking about this uh, and I thought it'd be an interesting question to kind of kick off our evening. What, um, um, when you think of Mother's Day or you think of memories of your mother, like what's the, like, what's the, uh, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Is it something that she used to wear? Is it something she used to cook? Is it something the way she hugged you? What's like the, the memory of her that, uh, well, there are many memories. I lost my mother at a very young age. I was 15 when she passed passed right. away. I remember she hearing was very that. Young. She was 42 when she passed away. But I, uh, I remember her. She played the piano beautifully. And that was one of my moments with my mother when she played the piano. That was a happy moment. A not-so-happy moment, she used to uh, reprimand us with a... Uh, how do you call this? It, it's a stick with plumes in it that you use to dust a duster. 
Oh, but feather duster? Ripped, yeah. yeah, but when she ripped Amanda, she used the stick. She held it by the plumes, by the feathers, and hit us with the stick. <laughs> so that oh, I man. also remember. Yeah, it, 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 was a, it was a memory that stayed with me. <laughs> you never looked at cleaning supplies the same way again, I suppose. No, no. I, <laughs> I, I just buy the dusters, as a matter of fact. <laughs> Oh, well. And I join you in, 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 in congratulating all mothers uh, stateside as well. Indeed. Indeed. Um, it's a wonderful Mother's Day here for us here with our family and uh, had some nice gifts from the children for, uh, for my wife. And, and, uh, and it, was a, it, was a, it was a really wonderful, memorable day. So it was good. So I hope everyone had a great Mother's Day and, and, and uh, everyone that's joining us tonight. Uh, we really appreciate uh Y'all coming in and joining us for our conversation with uh, Manolo Quesada, uh, an absolute legend in the business. I, I've asked this before. I've had I've had numerous people on this on this. Obviously, I've had 250 takes here, Manolo, but I've had numerous people on this on the show, and I've had some that you would consider legends of the business. I mean, and I think that most people, if they if if, if in the industry, if I was to drop your name, they would associate that word with you. Are you comfortable with that, though? I always like to ask this. Am I comfortable with being called a legend? Is that the yes, question? with being yes, sir, with being called a legend? Well, in all in all honesty, I am grateful that some of my work is recognized. Uh, I've put a lot of effort into whatever I've done in the industry, passion and. Uh, consistency and being married to quality and being married to tobacco. Uh, whether I'm a legend or not, well, that's, uh, you know, I'm just a regular person making cigars and uh, I've been doing it for a while. As a, as a matter of fact, uh, next year will be my 50th year making cigars uh, and my 68th in working with tobacco. So I've been around the industry for a while and I've maybe I have accomplished a couple of things. I don't know. Maybe some people do recognize them and I appreciate it, but I, that doesn't stop me from continuing, continuing to explore new, new worlds, new blends, new tobaccos, uh, keeping track of the market, smoking with smokers to get their, their opinions and their, their thoughts and where are they going with their palates? How are, how are the pallets maturing? Uh, which direction are they taking? Uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm interested. And even though I've been around for a while, hopefully I'll still have a couple of weeks to continue in my quest for better cigars and better blends and bringing pleasure to as many people as I can. Awesome. I, I, think, it's, I think it's worth noting just a couple of things that you're kind of remarking there. Um, I mean, I, I would consider yourself incredibly accomplished. I think most people would. Um, and, you, you know, yet you, your remarks were very, very humbled and everything. Uh, but what's, I, I mean, you've, you've, like you said, you've been, you've been in this industry for a half century and you've been working with yep. these products for over half a century. Um, what keeps, what keeps you going? What keeps you, what, what's in, in the quest what 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 are have you are you are you seeking to find the perfect cigar and you haven't found it yet? What 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 keeps you 
keeps going. Well, the quest for a perfect cigar is really not a good quest because perfection, we, we achieve perfection by making cigars that uh, bring pleasure to people and that perform, that work the way they're supposed to work. The drawing, the wrapper cuts, the, 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 the mechanically that the cigar functions as it's supposed to and the blend that performs in the fashion that we developed, designed the blend. A perfect cigar, I don't think I'll ever find a perfect cigar because every time I, I find a cigar that I think is the greatest thing I've, I've done, down the road I find something new and I make a, a, a new blend. And wow, this is uh, as good or better than the previous one and we just keep going. I think that's I think that's one of the th things that we talk about. You know, I've I've had the opportunity to review cigars, and I've been on several panels where we've we've talked about cigars, and um, and uh, we had I had the guys from Developing Palettes on a couple of weeks ago, and we we're we we're, we we're having this very discussion, and like I've I've enjoyed so many cigars in my lifetime, and that's why I keep smoking, and that's why I keep doing this is because I enjoy them, you know, um, but. I haven't had the perfect cigar yet. And, and I don't know if that'll, that'll probably ever happen. And Aaron, Aaron Loomis actually put it to me pretty, pretty simply he says bear that the perfect cigar probably will never come to you. But he says, if you, if you, when, when you're, when it's all said and done at the end of the day and you've had your last cigar and you look back and the best cigar that you had, that was the perfect cigar. But you know, bear the perfect cigar is also, a part of the perfect moment that you have enjoyed. Indeed. And I have enjoyed many perfect moments in my life with a cigar in my hand. Uh -huh. So the moment and the cigar make the, the, the perfection that we're looking for. But that changes uh, as, as, as you move on in life. Because mm -hmm. you continue to have perfect moments and the cigar joins you in that perfect moment. So you, re you remember many perfect moments in your life where a cigar has been part of that perfect moment. Absolutely. That, we're going to talk. We're gonna talk a, okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead, that, please. In, in that precise moment, that is perfection. Mm -hmm. When you have a moment that is really outstanding and the cigar is joining you and making that, that moment really great. So, yeah, perfection. We find perfection in many ways and many times. I could not agree more. Couldn't agree more. So it's it's with that thought though that I wanted to to open up our uh, our major point uh, segment, which of course is always brought to you by the people. Yes, cigar people, the people who know everything about a lifetime service. Protocol cigars is more than just pool parties and good times. Well, maybe it is, but behind the fun is a motivation for service, a motivation for giving back. From the uh, from the original Protocol Blue to the latest release in the Lawman series, Phoebe Cousins, Protocol Cigars has always been about honor, passion, and yes, the people. It's what their life's work has been and always will be about. Power of the P, Protocol Cigars. So, Manola, this is a. Uh, I've told this story actually several times on the show, and I've remarked on it in the past with a lot of people when we've talked about you. Um, and it was a moment that I got to share uh, with you and you've, you've had millions of these moments, but I'll never forget it. And it was the first time I met you and it was at Michael's tobacco of Eulis. 
Uh, back then it was called town and country cigars, but it was a Quesada cigars event and you came to town and I had the opportunity to step, come, come by and I had the opportunity to meet you. And, um, I'll never forget. I'll never forget that entire event. Um, and we had actually a couple of conversations, uh, throughout the evening. Do you, uh, happenstance, do you happen to remember? And it's okay if you don't, because like I said, you've had millions of these. <laughs> I remember at Eulis, and I remember meeting you. Uh, the conversation remind me. Oh, it's not. See, that's the thing about these moments that we're talking about. It wasn't the specifics, but I remember the way you made me feel. And I'll, I, I've said this, I've said this, I've retold this story dozens of times, Manolo. You have this uncanny and innate ability to make someone feel so welcome to the conversation and so welcome in the sense that I really felt like the way you made me feel when I departed our conversation that evening, I felt like you flew from the Dominican to Euless to just come see me. That's the way you made me feel like genuinely. Well, I'm, I'm happy. I'm happy to hear that. Uh, uh, Bear, I've always maintained that politeness and courtesy do not occupy any space. And there is no need and no reason not to be amicable, personable, and informative. I have no secrets. The secrets that I have are in my head. And if you ask me about them, perhaps I'll tell you I won't share them. But I've had a lot of competitors, friends who are also competitors, walk through my factory floor. And we have looked at everything and we have seen it. The, the secrets are not in the building. The secrets are somewhere else. So I, I have no qualms about anyone coming and talking to me and asking me questions. And I'm more than happy to, to be as informative as I can. I don't have all the answers, but I'll try to make it as comprehensive and as intelligent as my limited capacity for intelligence allowed me. It, it was it was just incredible. You you were so gracious and you know it was over, you know, at this point it was over 15 years ago, you know, and and uh it was it was a it was a moment I'll never forget for the rest of my life. And uh and every time I smoke a, a smoke a quesada cigar or Casa Magna and stuff, I I always go back to that moment. And well Bear, I I, I apologize but you made my night I'm done, so I'm leaving. <laughs> well, it was a great show. It was a great show. Thanks for coming on, Manolo. Appreciate it. Uh, but I, I wanted I wanted to start off our evening with that story. Just sharing it with you, uh, I mean, means a lot to me personally because of of what it meant has meant to me over the years and everything. So thank you for for that. Uh, thank you for that moment, and thank you for um, taking those 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 simple. Um, mantras that you've had your entire life and, and, and carrying them to our conversation that one day. So, um, so let, let's go back a little bit in your journey, a little bit in your history. Um, um, like many of the uh, historic brands that we, that we know today and care about today and love today, they all start in the country of they've, they, a lot of them started in the country of Cuba. And unfortunately your family had to leave and you, you, you left as a pretty young, pretty young age, if I recall. So, you were how like uh, 
You were less than 10 years old, correct? I was 13 when I left. 13. Okay. 13. So, and this was 1960. So this was just right after the revolution, correct? A year and four months, a year and six months after the revolution. Yes, sir. Actually, eight months because I left in August. Yeah. August of 1960. A year and eight months. Going back to that, I mean, I, I've always wanted to ask this of people and, and, and I apologize if it's a little difficult to answer. I mean, um, or maybe it's just so far gone. You, you don't even remember too much, but I mean, what at 13 years old, was that to leave home? Was that, was that difficult for you? Um, was it really hard or was it just the reality that you were faced with at the moment? Well, it was a huge change in our lives uh, in, in, in Cuba in Havana we weren't, you know, extremely or powerfully rich. We were a modest family with a good, you know, with good living. We went, we went to a great school. We're members of a club. Uh, we had, I had a pretty good life until I left Cuba. Now, when I left Cuba, I became an exile. And exiles, your life changes immediately. Uh, your, your lifestyle changes radically. And at 13, that was a big change. That was a big uh, uh, comeuppance in my life. And then going to Dominican Republic, uh, which was still developing, it wasn't as developed as Havana or Cuba was, or Miami, which was a point that we touched on our way to Dominican. We got to Santiago, and Santiago in, in 1960 was a, a small town, uh, and it was, uh, it was a big change. It was a big, and then I had to start to work, which I had never done in my life. <laughs> so at 13, I started working in the tobacco warehouses, and the lady that used to sweep the, the, the offices made more money than I did, but that was where I started, uh, and that's how it began, playing with tobacco and learning uh, to develop a relationship with tobacco that has lasted all these years. And, so the- and to come back a little uh, into the conversation, tobacco is an, an, an outstanding product. Uh, it's never the same. It always has surprises. It always demands from you. It's always asking you to do things, and you're asking it to do things. And that struggle between us and tobacco is always challenging, interesting, and keeps us on our toes and keeps us interested. And new crops come up, old crops are are there and aging, and you're playing with the old crops and playing with the new crops. It's It's just fascinating, Bear. It doesn't, it doesn't end. And it's something that you have in your blood and it's very difficult to step, step away from it. So that keeps us interested and that keeps us looking forward to making new things and, and developing new things and finding new avenues to pleasure. And that's what keeps us young, I, I suppose, even though we're not young, keeps us a little young. Were were you are you very similar to your father? Did he have this kind of hunger and quest, uh, you know, in his quest as well, or was he was he 
molded and driven by something by something different? Well, he never was a cigar maker. Because in Cuba, we were not cigar makers. In Cuba, we were leaf brokers. Mm -hmm. We used to deal with tobacco, uh, sorting, buying, sorting, selecting, fermentation, packing, and then selling it as raw material. So he was very passionate and very immersed, but only in the leaf tobacco area. He He never did go into the cigar making. I had a lot of years immersed in tobacco previously and then i went to to cigar making so i had a a wider scope to become passionate about i had two the tobacco and now the cigars so that doubled my my experience with playing with tobacco over my life span so so you go to work at 13, 14 years old. Like you said, you've never done this before. Um, and then you come back to the States to, to actually go to you. I, well, you attend college at first in the Dominican, right? And then you come to grad, uh, come to graduate school in the States. Is that correct? Yes, sir. I uh, finished my uh, bachelor's degree in Santiago. And then I went to NC State in Raleigh to do a master's in agriculture. Uh, at the time, I, I was uh, enlisted in the Selective Service Board. I was a 2S, which was a student back then. But when I changed my area of study from business to agriculture, the Selective Service didn't quite, quite consider that a continuation of me being a student. So they, they classified me as an A1, which meant that I was ready immediately awaiting to be drafted. And draft me, they did. Um, my, you know, my like you, my my father served uh, in in Vietnam as well. And oh dear, yeah. So he he actually uh, he was actually uh, he actually volunteered. He was an officer. He went. He he did uh, ROTC in college. Went to OCS. Did the whole thing. And um, and but uh, but that experience. irreversibly uh, changed his life forever. He'll tell you that uh, in a lot of different ways. But but, uh, without any intention of being disrespectful, but your father never worked for a living. No, he'll tell me. No, he tells me that. Yeah, he tells me that all the time. Yeah. I I was a non-com. I worked for my living. That's right. You sure did. he'd, He'd be the first to tell me. Uh, no, no, my, my, uh, my, my, my father, uh, I think, I think, uh, I met one of the enlisted men that served under him, uh, once and, um, I never, I didn't quite get it. Cause I was about, I was about 13 years old at the time. And I, and I didn't quite get it until I was an adult and I'd heard those stories and my father telling me all the time, like, I didn't work for a living, you know, oh, so-and-so worked for a living, you know, that kind of thing. But the respect that this man had my, for my father, um, and then years later, I actually had another conversation with him and, and he said, you know, I, I said, hey, I can, I, can tell, I can tell how much respect you have for my dad and I really appreciate that. He said, he said, you know why I love your dad so much? And I said, no, tell me, please. And he says, he said, because he, he might've worn those tracks. My dad was a captain. He said he might've worn those tracks, but he never acted like he did. 
He never acted like he was above us. He never acted like he was better than me. If anything else, all he did was care about us. And all he did was want us to survive one more day. That well, was it. that good man, he was an officer that I would have respected totally. Because yeah. I had my share of officers that I did not respect at all. Yeah, I've I've heard I've heard stories about that too. So, um, including some that my father served under as well. But uh, but yeah, it was it um it was a it was a interesting it's an it was an interesting life my father's led that uh, that was changed quite dramatically by his by his experience in the service and everything. And I is, is he still with you? Is he alive still? Yes, yes, he is. Uh, he isn't. Uh, un- unfortunately, his uh, his health in the last few years has uh, has taken a really bad turn. But uh, no, he's still with us, and uh, and um, you know, blessed. Um, I'm, I was blessed to be raised by him, and and uh, and uh, he was he's an incredible man. So um, very fortunate. But he would. I do need to say this because he would be very upset with me if I didn't. Thank you for your service very much for what you did for our country. Thank you as well. And the next time you see him, send him this for me, please. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, So during that time, and then, but uh, during that time, you, you, you didn't, uh, I I guess you you didn't serve more than, I think you just served one tour. Is that correct? Because of, because of the fact that you extended because you extended, right? I, and it- well, I extended because I already was in the rear guard. Uh, I had I had been taken out of out of the front after eleven months in the front, and I was made a supply sergeant. Okay. And if you extended, if you extended in Vietnam, having five months left to service, they would condone those five months. So by staying in Vietnam, fourteen months. I saved the last five months of my service. So I didn't serve, serve the two years. I served uh, a year a year and seven months instead of the, the two years. So, so you come back, um, you come back from service and then you, you end up finishing your graduate studies at uh, Florida State, correct? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, was it in agriculture? Did you end up finishing that? No, that I, I went back. I went back to business. Okay. Marketing. Marketing. Oh, FSU. interesting. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, one of my dear friend, my dear friends has a is a, also a postgraduate degree in marketing from FSU. So I'll have to tell her that uh, that about you. So I think she'll find that interesting. That's cool. Um, he's a seminar. He's good. He's good people. Awesome. Well, um, so you so you come back into the business, and, and and I know that there's a lot that kind of happens, but you know, over the, over the obviously, I mean, it's kind of hard to condense you know decades into a couple of things. But I wanted to touch on the fact that, um, like you mentioned before, you you weren't always manufacturers. Um, you were you were brokers, as you mentioned, and everything. When did the initial decision to go into manufacturing start? In 1972, Dominican Republic started the program of the free zones, the industrial free zones. And in 1973, the family decided that we were going to go into cigar making and take advantage of the uh, free zone facilities that were offered. So we started planning. And in 1974, the family decided to open a cigar factory 
in the free zone of Santiago and in the family raffle, I got the winning ticket to go open the factory. So they sent me to the free zone in Santiago with uh, $100, four bales of tobacco, and uh, to start a factory in an, in an empty building. And my office at the time was a table, a chair, a phone. I had three cigar makers. Uh, and that's how we started in June of 1974. I've heard you tell this story before. I, I've always, I, I know this sounds really bizarre. I've always wanted to ask, um, how, how big was this building? 10,000 square feet. Okay. So a lot of room to grow. So, okay. So it wasn't like a, you oh, weren't yeah. in like a broom, yeah. you weren't in a broom closet or anything doing this. No, no, no. I, but we were making cigars next to the windows because I had no power or electricity or, or lighting or anything. Four bales, $100, 10,000 square foot, three rollers, and a telephone. Gosh, that's, uh, <laughs> that's, some, that's some meager resources. Did you guys have a bathroom? That was quite, <laughs> yeah, thankfully we did. And, and water, running water, thankfully. Okay. But that was uh, the beginning. The beginning of a huge adventure. What uh, was uh, I'm going to get huge in the nerding nerd down here with the nerding out here with this these four bales of tobacco. Was it a puro? Were the first cigars that you made out of that factory were they were they puros or or? No, no, all Dominican, but the wrapper was Connecticut. Oh, okay. Even yeah. so, even in 1972, Connecticut kind of reigned supreme, huh? That yeah. When I started, Connecticut rapper was, and mild cigars were the 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 lay of the land as well, right? And Connecticut fit right in the profile. So uh, you guys weren't into many because, like, it felt like right, uh, from what I've read about history, like right after the revolution and everything, from like the 1960s into like the mid 1970s, like Candela cigars were kind of like all the rage, or what we called American Claro, I guess was what yes, it was sir. called back then. Um, so, uh, thankfully, I guess thankfully you missed you missed that. And you got into real blending in the 1970s with Connecticut and uh, Dominican tobacco and everything. What? Um, what what were some of the things that you first noticed uh, about some of the some of the cigars that you were making that were different from what what else you saw on the market or heard on the market? And everything like you said, you were a marketing major, so I'm sure you you took note of some of these things. Well, again, the the gist was it was a mild cigar that had taste. And the Dominican tobacco was perfect for it because it was a, a noble tobacco that didn't have the, the, the throaty effect. Okay. It was a much nobler tobacco in the palate. And the Connecticut fit right into the blending of Dominican tobaccos. It, it fit very well. However, I, ha I have to say that Connecticut from the valley, the United States Connecticut, is a wrapper that has to be blended very carefully because it tends to be a little on the bitter side, a very slight bitterness that if you don't recognize it and neutralize it, your blend will not be what you're looking for. So the, my origins with Connecticut shade was trying to find the tobaccos that fit the Connecticut wrapper and tone it down 
and made it a partner of the tobaccos that were in the in in, in the bunch. So that was my first challenge when I opened the factory. So I know you were obviously smoking a lot of those, and and it's it's interesting when you talk about like when I talk to people manufacturers that spend so much time in the factory. You don't get a lot of time of just simply enjoying a cigar like the way that I enjoy a cigar. Um, there's a lot of smoking, a lot of tasting, a lot of checking, and a lot of, you know, it's a lot of, it's a lot of work. Um, but uh, we're at the time, if you can recall, like, were you enjoying these same type of cigars? Like, was that what your palate was really going towards? Or was your palate, was your palate enjoying other things that were like a little bit different than what you guys were making? I oh my palate always called for a little more intensity than the original cigars that I started making. And uh, when we started making the Romeo and Julieta brand in 1977, we made that blend a little more intense, uh, not totally intense as cigar, cigars that are now in the market, but a little more intense than the Connecticut Shade cigars that I was making previously. It's like, I think you're reading off of my notes here, uh, Manolo. It's exactly the next place I was going to go. So I think uh, you kind of skipped over it, though. But I, I, for those people who are who may not be aware of your history for for over two over two decades, almost three decades, right? You, go, you all made uh, Romeo and Julieta cigars for the American market. Yes, sir. We did. That's a really oh, le- that's a really legendary brand. I know we've thrown that word out quite a bit today already, but that's that's a it's kind of a big deal. <laughs> was it as big of a deal back then? Like when you first started in 1977, was did you know what you had, or was it was it just another client at the time, or was it just another you know another product? Well, the owner of the brand at the time was Mr. Wally Frank of New York. And he trusted me to make the cigar that I thought was, he did give me pointers because they had a, they had a brand uh, that, that was being made in their factory in uh, Kingston, New York. So he gave me some pointers and introduced me to using broadleaf tobacco, which I, ha- I was working broadleaf tobacco, but not using broadleaf tobacco in, in the cigars. So that was one suggestion that Mr. Wally Frank gave me. And we did use uh, Broadleaf uh, as a binder in the Romeo and Julieta in 1977. Wow. And the reason I say that I was working, because Mr. Bill Fink of Fink Cigars in San Antonio, Texas, uh, asked me to strip tobacco for him in our factory in Dominican. And we, we were working Puerto Rican tobacco, the Cialis uh, Puerto Rican, and the Broadleaf. So I was very familiar with stripping and fermenting those two tobaccos, but I had never used them in a cigar until Romeo and Julieta came in 77. And Mr. Wally Frank suggested that I use Broadleaf. And the blend that we came up with using a little Broadleaf was a little more intense than the previous cigars that I had been making from 74 to 77. Wow. It's kind of, it's kind of hard to think of like to, in today's age, like I know that uh, Altadis has done some things in recent years to make 
some Romeo and Julieta products a little bit more, have more intensity and more body and things like that. But even like when I started smoking 20 years ago, you know, to think that that was at the time, you know, the Romeo and Julietas, because I think the, I think the first Romeo and Julietas I smoked at the time, I guess that they were you, you, cause you were manufacturing them until when? 1997. Okay, I just missed it then. Darn it. Okay. I was going to say I might have smoked some of the last ones that you made, but, you know, not maybe not intentionally. Maybe I found some on the shelf and stuff, but I mean, I smoked a lot when I first started. Um, well, in 97, when uh, Altad, well, Altad is not Altad, it's Tawakalera bought the brand from the Wally Frank family. They took the, the production to Romana, to their mm-hmm. factory in Romana, and they. At the time, tobaccos were hard to find. It was a boom. And they changed the whole concept of Romeo when they took it away. Yeah, before we get into that part of uh, the history of, of the cigar industry, I do want to touch on another historic brand that you had for many years, too. And you just uh, you just recently sold it to the Garcia family, which was, of course, the Fonseca brand. Um, which is also an iconic brand that's been in the industry for years and everything. Um, and you guys, uh, I have a very cool story about that, but, uh, before I get to it, I wanted to hear how did, how did that come? How did that come into your, to your hands into the Quesada family? Well, there was a family in Miami, the Sosa family were making cigars in Miami. And when we opened the factory, they decided to send their production to our factory, and Fonseca was the brand that, that, that they they had in their portfolio at the time. So we started making Fonsecas for them as well. And we continued making Fonseca till a couple of years ago when we uh, transferred the brand to the Garcia. So another, another story of mine, uh, Manoa, and um, was the the very first cigar that i ever smoked was on my 18th birthday um and um my younger brother of all people um acquired cigars for us to smoke on my 18th birthday he was younger of course but as i mentioned but i was of legal age at the time and uh but that's what i wanted for my birthday present my younger brother uh got a hold of two cigars and for us to smoke that night and on the evening of my 18th birthday, my very first cigar ever was a Fonseca. Oh, dear. Well, that's that's an outstanding story. I, I like that. <laughs> so um, my um, I absolutely loved it. Obviously, I'm here. I'm here today. Um, I'm here today because of that because of that one. I have a lot of other stories along the way that got me to this point of where I am in my cigar smoking career and my career in this industry and everything, but, but it all started with the Fonseca on my 18th birthday. So, again, my work is done here. Good night. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, but I, I will embarrass, I, I will embarrass myself. Okay. I will embarrass myself because I will admit this on the air and I will admit this to you. So, um, and of course I was just learning at the time. I had no idea, but when I, even when I first met you a few years later after that, um, I had no idea that you made them. So I didn't share that story when I, when I shared you this, the wonderful story about our first meeting together, I didn't share that story with you that night because I had no idea until, um, 
it was about, it was, it was probably a couple weeks later when I was actually talking about my meeting you and then my story about cigars. And they're like, about my first cigar. They're like, yeah, it was a fun second. They're like, oh, that's ironic. And I was like, what's ironic? And we're like, well, Manolo Casada makes one second. I was like, you're kidding. And I just had this moment of just, and I, thankfully I didn't embarrass myself to you that evening. Uh, but, uh, but, uh, but yeah, I, I, I think that's the, the ironic and funny part that, um, that I never, uh, that I didn't realize until after you and I had met the first time that you had actually made those cigars, but it was, um, it's, it's still one of my fondest memories. I, I, I look back on it with, uh, with, with, uh, with great, yeah, just great delight. And it's, it's a, it's a great, it was a great moment. So, uh, it's, well, I'm happy it's, to hear that. Yeah, it's wonderful to talk to you about it. The, uh, but so like, so, so you get into manufacturing, you open up the factory after the free zone and this, this goes on for a couple of decades. And then of course the, what everyone talks about um, in the mid nineties um, and it's, it's always, I, I always love when people talk about the boom because it's, it's mentioned with such reverence and at the same time such disdain <laughs> there's so much mixed emotion around the boom and it's 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 a really it's a really insane part of our industry's history um how when you look back at the boom how do you look back on it is it with fond memory is it with mixed emotion how do you look back on it no 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 there during the boom and Pro Cigar was already uh, an institution. Uh, it was mixed feelings. Uh, new smokers were coming in. The market was growing exponentially. That was good for everyone. But on our end, the supplies, the tobacco, the materials were in very short supply and in very high demand. So it was a very, very difficult time for us uh, as manufacturers during the boom. But in a meeting in Pro Cigar, we decided that we were going to take the high road. And that means that we were not going to take advantage of the situation and make money and retire because our purpose in life was not to do that. Our purpose was to make cigars for the next generation of the family or the families of Pro Cigar and continue. And in order to do that, we had to maintain a level of quality and a level of price that was consistent with our future. Mm -hmm. If we, and trust me, if we would have taken the low road, we would have made, made all kinds of cigars with whatever was available made a lot of money and retired mm -hmm. but, but that was not the purpose the purpose and we had the brands the dominican republic had the brands to do that we could have just started making whatever we wanted with whatever tobaccos were available they would have been sold and we would have made money and a lot of money but in the end our reputation would have been tarnished and we decided no that's not the, that's not our purpose we are going to continue our, our levels of quality. We're going to continue our levels of pricing. And it was hard because we were in back order constantly. 
while other new manufacturers were throwing cigars in the market uh, at, at whatever they could manufacture. So it, it was difficult, but it was also challenging, and it was a it, it, it definitely made us grow. Uh, and after the boom, when everything came to a standstill, and the, the, couple, the couple of years after the boom were very tough years because we had a lot of inventory because we had been building up uh, over the years to try to maintain the levels of supply. But when it all stopped, the 98 to 99, 99 to 2000 were two difficult years uh, in our industry. But it also made us more entrenched in keeping the tobaccos the way they're supposed to be, going back to the farms and, and growing better, making changes, uh, fermentation, aging. Uh, it really helped the industry as a whole to go through those difficult times. And for us, maintaining our levels of, of commitment uh, gave us a good start after the boom. Yeah, I think the um, it's it's such a it's such a crazy part of our industry's history. And like you said, there were so many people that didn't take the high road. And you know, I've heard you even talk about this. You, you in fact, uh, you mentioned it even uh, in the interview that they did for uh, Hand Rolled, the documentary that they did a couple years back. Yeah. And the um, some of your segments in that doc I've seen that documentary. Uh, Probably thirty times I've watched it, um, and uh, every time I say that, Pete Johnson loves when I tell him that how many times I've seen it because he just can't believe how many times I've, I've watched it over and over again, and I love it because you actually opened the documentary, which is great. Um, and um, I couldn't, and he even says this too, and I it was really funny. We were talking about it haphazardly, and I said that I couldn't imagine someone better opening it um, because there's something about. There's something about your vo voice, Manolo, that's um, that's very um, um, it's very reassuring. It's very calming, but at this, there, there's a seriousness to your tone uh, that that grabs one's attention. And it's 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 like I said, it's a it's a very unique characteristic that you have about your person. It's your personality that's just unbelievably magnetic. And I said it couldn't well, it couldn't have been. Bear. You're welcome. It couldn't. Have, I was like, it could have been open. <laughs> it couldn't have been open better. And I, but like, you talked about the boom in that documentary, and you were talking about how how many people were taking the low road. Like, people were stealing rollers, people were stealing tobacco, and I mean, there was just so much, like, so much to what we know as the industry today, where people genuinely care and help each other out, and there just wasn't that much of it then. And it just seems so hostile. And for you all, the small group of the group that made up pro cigar to make this stand was just so essential and so vital to the industry. And it's so, it's so clear that um, it made the lasting impact that has affected our industry for the better, because I think the past couple of years, we've had almost another Renaissance, another boom, so to speak, but it's a lot different this time. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. But just to give you an idea, uh, at the height of the boom, 
I was called to a meeting with an owner, the owner of one brand that I was making in the factory. And their, their, the, the reason for the meeting was to complain about the lack of supply and the shortness of, of supply. And my answer to them was, do you want your brand or do you want cigars? If your answer is your brand, this meeting is over. You will get what you get. If your answer is cigars, I will send you truckloads of cigars immediately. Your choice. And of course, their choice was, no, 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 we want to respect the brand. And that was the end of the meeting. And trust me, by, by it going the other way, making just cigars under that brand would have been a boon for both of us, the owner of the brand and myself. But that was not the point. That was not the point. The point was that these things have to last longer than a boom. Definitely. So w- want to take a quick break here and, and, and we're going to take a little fun break with one of our fun segments, as I like to call them here. And, and then I want to come back to this conversation because I think it's the, what's really interesting about the story of Quesada's uh, is not just the previous generation and the generation you come from, but also the next generation that's kind of come into this. And we're going to get to that in here in just a second. So uh, this next segment, of course, is our presidential trivia segment. I've told you about this a little bit before we got started today, uh, Manolo. And that is um, always, of course, uh, brought to you by our friends at United Cigars, featuring La Giana Havana and distributors of Jose Dominguez, Firecracker, Bandolero, Garofalo, and highly acclaimed Atabay, Byron, and now Alfonso lines from Selected Tobacco. So smoke once today and start living united. Um, so here is a presidential trivia question, Manol. I thought um, there's a reason I chose this, and we'll get to it in the reason, but there are, our subject tonight is Ronald Reagan, okay? Um, and um, and the question of the night is, uh, hold on. I misplaced it. Just give me a second here. Uh, the question <laughs> of the night, of course, is which is not a nickname of Ronald Reagan? Not a nickname of Ronald Reagan. So here are your choices. A, the Teflon president. B, the great communicator. C, the Gip- the Gipper. Or D, Sphinx. I'm supp- and I'm supposed to answer this. Correct. Yes, sir. I would That's go with the good. Gipper. All right. Well, actually, that was one of his nicknames. Um but the uh, did you want to take another uh, another guess, perhaps? The Teflon president. That was one of his nicknames as well. I believe it or not. Um, but it was actually the Sphinx. So the Sphinx was actually uh, uh, a nickname for another president. I'll go over that in a second. But the reason I chose this question, Manila, was um, was because of the great communicator one that you didn't select was, was, was one of his nicknames. And the reason that was one of his nicknames was I, I, he was just known at the time for just giving these absolutely wonderful speeches. He was, of course, was an actor, right. And, uh, and his ability to communicate, not just with, not just in speeches and everything like that, but he was just known for having such great communication with his cabinet uh, members of foreign state uh and um he was just he was really um he was he was you know 
just one of just had a very magnetic personality, which I've talked about with about you. And so it kind of he when I was looking back on this question, I was like, I'll come up with a question tonight. And it, it is that kind of reminded me of if of all the experiences and and that I've had with had with you, whether it's an interview that I've listened to you or part of, you know, part of the documentary or our own conversations that we've had in the past and everything. And it just reminded me of you and everything. So I, that's why I wanted to do this question tonight. But yeah, he was known as the great communicator. The Gipper, of course, comes with his role as he was actually the George Gip or the Gipper in the film Newt Rockney, the All-American. So he yeah. actually played that. And then uh, the Teflon president was actually coined by um, a congresswoman at the time, uh, uh, Congresswoman Schroeder, I believe. Um because she said that nothing negative ever stuck to him, kind of like Teflon. So um, that was yeah. kind of that's where that came from. But uh, um, the um, Sphinx nickname was actually was actually one of Franklin Roosevelt's nicknames. So um, there, it's an it, there's an obscure reason behind it. I can't recall all the details. I just know that that was one of his nicknames, and so I threw that I threw that in there. So, but uh, but that uh, that was our presidential trivia question for the night. Um, did you study a lot of history uh, in your in your studies, either in the in the Dominican or when you came to graduate school, or was it mostly mostly just business when when you uh, went to college? Bayer, I I have a degree of difficulty that's above average. I was born in Cuba. I lived in Dominican Republic for many many decades. Mm -hmm. I've worked in Nicaragua for many years. I'm an American as well, so. I'm a Spaniard as well. So it is expected of me to know a lot about these five countries. Mm -hmm. So I have to be conversant in the history and the, the current situations in all these five countries. So I'm not a, a, a I'm not perfect in any of them. I, I don't know all the answers to any of them, but I can converse with Nicaraguans or Cubans or Spaniards or Americans or Dominicans and fit right in because I know the history of, of those countries and what's happening in those countries. So do you have dual citizenship? Yes, sir. I do. So you're, so you're American. Do you, are you also a Spanish citizen yes. too? Yes, sir. And then a Dominican citizen as well. No, I'm a Dominican resident. Resident, okay. I so never be. I, I I have a Cuban passport. And you have a Cuban with my thirty with my thirteen year old picture. I've never renewed it, but I have the right to to have a Cuban passport because I was born in Cuba. Would you consider? Um, I mean, given the the uh, unfortunate history of 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 the country and everything, do you do you consider yourself a Cuban citizen? Not anymore. No, no. I consider myself an American citizen. Awesome. When did you become a Spanish citizen? When I left Cuba. Oh, okay. Okay. Because of my heritage. My whole family is from Spain. So oh, okay. I had the right to, I had the right to, to have a Spanish passport. Oh, wow. Oh, because, wow. My, because my Cuban passport was worthless at the time. Oh, wow. Oh gosh, what a twist of fate! Yeah, that's interesting. How many generations? How many generations uh, had been in Cuba before uh, from from Spain? Uh, four. 
four. Oh wow. Okay. So it'd been a long in time Cuba, since. Okay. So it'd been a long time before anyone for any any case out of, of your family had been had been actually in Spain. Well, they they were all Spaniards, yeah. but they were all working in Cuba. Interesting. Okay, cool. Oh wow. Wow, man. That is that has to and what a <laughs> what a rich heritage. That's crazy. Um unbelievable. Well, uh, I'll tell you something else, Bear. I went when when I was drafted. I was drafted as a Spanish citizen and an American resident. When I went overseas and played in the in the lovely countryside of the country that I was doing my stint in, I, I was a Spaniard. I was not an American. Oh wow. So I served in the U.S. Army as a Spaniard. Wow. I didn't realize that. Yeah, I, I became I, an American. I became an American citizen after, from July to January, what, six months in Vietnam. I became a citizen while in Vietnam. So your American citizenship is actually your the la, is actually the last one the last citizenship that you've had. Yes, oh sir. wow! Correct. Wow, I didn't. I I, I was interested about uh, talking about this. I, I didn't want to get too far down the line, so I'm glad it came up again because like I was I was because the timeline was confusing to me. I was like, okay, so you left Cuba, came to Miami for a little bit, went to the Dominican, came back to the states to study, and then you were drafted. And I was like, how did that work? <laughs> like so. Um, so you were drafted as a Spanish citizen. Wow. Man, crazy time in our well, history. Remember, as a resident of the United States, you could live there, work there, pay taxes, not vote, and be subject to the draft. Mm -hmm. Those were the five conditions of being a resident in the United States back then. And okay. I right, didn't I'm work. Well, I did work in the States. I studied in the States. I never voted because I wasn't an American. And I was being subject to the draft. I was drafted. Um, have, have you ever, um, I'm sure you have, but have you voted in an American election? Since you became yes, a citizen? Sir. Okay. Yeah. Do you remember what the first election was you voted in? Uh. The Bushes, the first Bush. The first Bush. Oh wow! Okay. Wow, man. Yeah, this is this is for my own per my own personal knowledge. Now I'm going like we're going down the beaten path, but <laughs> it's just interesting to me. Um, that's crazy. That's all. That's awesome though. Um, it's, like I said, very rich heritage that you have. Unbelievable. Well, that was. I know we kind of got off. Sorry, that was our presidential trivia segment, which is brought to you by United Cigars. Uh, smoke one today and start living united. Uh, pay attention. We will be doing a month long, actually a 20 day long campaign with United Cigars uh, from Flag Day on June 14th to July 4th is exactly 20 days. So celebrating our nation's uh, Flag Day and our nation's Independence Day are 20 days apart coming up this summer. And we'll be smoking a United Cigar once a day uh, in memory and in honor of our country. So get ready for that. That'll be a fun, fun thing that we'll be launching with our partners there at United Cigar. So uh, smoke one today and start living united. 
getting back to the, the, the history of Quesada cigars and, uh, um, you know, the, it, you know, it, it always hasn't been Quesada cigars. There was, you know, of course, SAG imports, and there there are a lot of a lot of variations of the companies that you you've run over the years, uh, Manola. But it was in the early '90s that your the next generation kind of came out. That's when I believe your daughter Raquel started come came into the business in the in the early '90s. Is that right? Uh, more toward the the latter part of the '90s. The latter part of the '90s. Okay. Um, was she the first person of the next generation to come into the business? Yes, sir. What, uh, when she made that decision, was that was that a family decision? Was that her own independent decision? Like, no. how did that all come about? In our family, you we were never forced into the business. You made a choice if you wanted to work in the business. I have cousins in the United States that never came into the business. I have cousins here in Spain that never came into the business. But my brother and I decided to come into the business. And Raquel decided on her own to come into the business. Nobody was ever forced or told to come into the family business, thankfully. Because now no, no one can blame anyone for whatever mishaps you may have uh, or may have had in your history with the family. It was all voluntary. And, and then that started kind of a, a really nice wave. You had a, a nice wave in the early 2000s of, of, of the next generation kind of coming into the business. Some have, some have left the family business, but still stay in the industry and everything. Um, yeah. Uh, including, your, including your other daughter as well, too, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the younger generations, and particularly the boys, and I'm talking about Austin and TJ, they didn't have the patience that we had. And we, we knew that moving up in the company was a matter of time. And the younger generations don't have that patience. And they wanted to do things that couldn't be accomplished within the framework of the family. So, we came to an agreement and said, hey, follow your dream. And both of them did. And also now is running a factory of his own. And TJ is working for a very well-known company in the cigar world in the, the United States. And they wanted to do things on their own. And I, would, I wasn't going to stand in their way. You know, um, I think that kind of goes back to our conversation about the formation of Pro Cigar and taking taking the high road. I'm, you know, they're, I'm sure that wasn't an easy decision for them or an, even an easy decision for you as well. But, you know, At but all. still. I, I was very sad and very sorry to not have him with me anymore. But again, I wasn't going to stand in, in their way and not be able to give them what they wanted and keep them there under uh, not good conditions. So we agreed that, hey, follow your dreams and God bless you. We're still family. We still talk to each other. We still see each other. We're still, as I said, cousins and uncles and nephews and 
but that's family. That's not business. In business, well, they're on their own now. God bless them. I, we, I, I wish them all the best. And they're doing great, thankfully. This, I mean, this Raquel family is... Decided, yes, go ahead, please. Raquel decided to stay, so she's with me still. And my younger daughter as well. She's here in Madrid, by the way. Oh, okay. She has, uh, she has become a yoga instructor. Okay. And she has her own shop. She has her own shop here in Madrid. And she's doing very well. And she found her liking. She, she found her call in life. An entrepreneur, though, just like her father. <laughs> so an entrepreneur, <laughs> nonetheless. Not in the tobacco industry, but still an entrepreneur. Um, well, oh, I do want to come back to Raquel for a second. But before that, I mean, this family has gone, I mean, the, with the departures of family members and everything, this family has been through a lot more than just that. So we're, early 2000s, it was in 2002, unfortunately, that tragedy really really struck the family um, with a horrific plane crash that took the lives yeah. of three three very important people to your family. I mean, uh, including your, your own brother, um, his son, your nephew, and then uh, an extended member of the family, I believe was the head of your factory at the time, correct? Julio, yes, indeed. He was, he was family. Mm-hmm. I, I think no, it's a, it's Bear, obvious. Yes, please. I was. I do a lot of what what I call internal tourism. I sit with a cigar in a rocking chair, and I, I, I put myself in situations, and try to figure out how I'm going to resolve that situation. And always came to mind my father leaving Cuba with nothing other than the clothes that he was wearing. And starting anew in a different country, same industry, but different country, with four children and his wife. And I always said, what, how would I react if I was in a situation like that? And I always made different scenarios and different answers to the questions until it happened to me where I was in a different scenario, but same, same results that, uh, plane crash left me alone with three very important people in the in the family business and from one night to the next morning i'm left alone with everything in, uh, uh, on my shoulders and that was again a a, a life-changing experience and sort of a maturing uh, moment in my life as well I imagine you and your brother were really close. We were. And his son, my, my nephew, was already involved in the industry. Uh, so we had a relationship. I was sort of tutoring him, mentoring him. And Julio, of course, he was my right-hand guy in the factory. And we had a great relationship. And I, with his family, his daughters, and his son, and his wife, and we had dinners, and we he was part of the family and he was a big support uh, in the factory for the things that I had to do. So again, from one mo one evening to the next morning, I was left alone with everything on my shoulders, the leaf business, the factory, the family members that had lost 
and Julio's family as well, of course. So yeah, that was a difficult time. Did it remind you of all of the loneliness that you felt when your father shift you off to the Dominican with four bales, a hundred dollars and a 10,000 foot square. Foot. Was it? Well, that, that was a different kind of loneliness. That was yeah. more of a challenge. And I, I had to more, more or less prove to everybody that, that I could do what they thought I, they, they wanted me to do. Mm-hmm. So, so it was 2004 that you guys get out of the brokering business, a business that you've known your entire life, a couple generations yes. deep, and you guys leave that behind. Any regrets? Well, yes, but unfortunately, I, I can't have regrets because I didn't have the wherewithal to maintain the leaf business. It was just too much. And we decided that I decided that the factory was the main uh, venue of business and that demanded and required a lot of attention. Mm-hmm. So we decided to, whatever tobaccos we handled were, were to be for the factory alone, not to be sold. Mm-hmm. So we got out of the brokerage business in 2004, as you mentioned, and concentrated in the factory. My brother was the one running the leaf business when he was alive. So he ran the leaf and I ran the factory. So that was very good. But when I had to take both companies under my my supervision, I decided that the factory required and demanded my attention more than the leaf business. So what I'm about to say might be a tad controversial, considering we talked about such historic brands as Fonseca and Romeo and Julieta. And at this point, at this point in our history, we've already we've been manufacturing and brokering and been in tobacco for uh, three plus decades at this point and up to this point where we're at in the timeline. But what I'm about to say might be a tad controversial. Because I think in 2004, when you started concentrating on manufacturing, that's really when that's really when the creative juices started flowing and we started seeing some of arguably some of the best cigars to ever come out of Quesada. Indeed. Indeed. So Casa Magna. Okay, go ahead, please. Before we go into Casa Magna. No, 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 no. Casa Magna. What what were you going to ask? So Casa Magna. We, this, this has become, I would say probably in the last, 15 years has become one of the preeminent brands if of not just the Dominican Republic manufactured cigars but uh or well we'll get to where it was manufactured initially but it, it's not not just one of the most iconic brands to come out of a Dominican manufacturing family we'll say it that way but yeah it has it has morphed and evolved into something much more in a very wonderful story. So it all started with conversations that you used to have with a particular Nicaraguan manufacturer about making a Nicaraguan cigar at this point, which yes, you had sir. not done. So talk, talk, walk us through that part of the story of Casa Magna. <coughs> 
2002, we were, SAG was a distribution company in Miami, which I ran as well. And it was representing a Nicaraguan brand in the United States. In 2007, the owner of that brand notified me that he was taking the brand to another distributor. So I was not going to have a Nicaraguan cigar anymore. And that brand in our portfolio at SAG in Miami was a big part of our portfolio. It represented a big percentage of our sales. So not having that Nicaraguan brand in our portfolio would have been detrimental to our business. So immediately I decided to take up the offer that I that I had been made by this Nicaraguan manufacturer, Nestor Placencia, to be uh, clear. And as soon as the gentleman told me that he was taking that brand away from us, he told me on a Friday, Monday, I was in Nicaragua blending for a new cigar from Nicaragua to substitute the cigar that I was losing uh, from Nicaragua. And that's how Castamagna began. And the Placencias, Nestor and Nestor Jr. allowed me to go into their factory and gave me the run of all their tobacco to find what I needed, what I wanted to make the cigar. And that's how Casa Magna was blended in the Placencia factory. And I started blending that cigar at seven in the morning on a Monday. And by seven in the evening, I had made the, I had made the final decision on the blend. Oh, wow. And, asked them, and start, I asked them to start making the cigars. And they asked me, well, what are they going to be named? I said, I don't know. Just make the cigars. <laughs> And I, when I finally got the name, I told them they're going to be named so uh, Casa Magna. And they said, how are they going to be packed? I said, I don't know. Keep making cigars and I'll, I'll, let you, I'll let you know soon how they're going to be packed. So we started developing the labels and the bands. And, the, and then we went to their factory in Honduras to make the boxes. And we were ready for the 2007 RTDA back then in Vegas, and that's where Casa Magna was launched uh, into the United States market. So the, so it, I mean, it hits the, it hits the market with a, with a absolute uh, boom. It's in the subsequent year, it gets named the illustrious title of the number one cigar of the year from Cigar Aficionado. Um. Yes. You know, I've had the opportunity to talk to a number of people who have had number one cigars. I've had Alan Rubin on. I've had Carlito Fuente. Um, I've had the opportunity to talk to Leo Gomez, not on this show. Um, but and and of course, Ernesto Perez Carrillo Jr. as well. I think all of those, including yourself, have handled the number one ranking differently. What? What was the what was the impact that it had on your business once that happened? Well, it was named the number one cigar in January, and by February we were out of cigars. Oh, wow! And March, April, May, 
and June of that year, we didn't sell one Casa Magna because the cigars that were being made were not ready to be sold. And I, and I refused to bring cigars that were not ready to be sold in the market. So for four, three and a half months, March, April, May, and, a, and part of June, I had no Casa Magnus to sell, being the number one cigar of the year. That was a big loss of income, of course, but it maintained the quality and the consistency of the brand uh, as, as it should be. Let's talk about the quality and consistency for a moment. Um, I'm holding the, the, the one that we're talking about, the Casa Magna Colorado, the original. Yes, sir. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm still smoking the, the Liga FA that uh, you had me start off this evening, and it's, it's smoking phenomenal and I'm enjoying it incredibly. But we're going to get to that one in just a second. But um, I've smoked, I don't know, it's safe to say, it's safe to say boxes of the Colorado over the past 15 years. Um, and I don't know what it is, Manola, and you, and you might be able to comment on this. Um, I obviously have enjoyed it all this time, but I think in the last two years, I have enjoyed the Colorado more now than I ever did before. And I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's my palate. I don't know if it's just the way that the, the, the blend has just kind of, carried on through the years um but it is it is smoking not just just as good it is smoking better than i have ever smoked that i've ever in my memory and the way that my palate has worked over the years um have you have you heard similar criticism or i guess you can call it criticism have you heard similar thoughts about it or yes 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 how do you attribute to that too well two things but before i before i I answer that. Let's go back a moment. Quality is a very important word in, in our world. Quality is the word that we uh, heighten. But consistency to me is as important as quality. You cannot be good one day and then not good the next day. You have to be good all days, ever. So consistency of quality is the phrase that I like to use rather than quality alone. And that consistency of quality has been maintained in uh, Casa Magna throughout the years. Now, palates evolve mm-hmm. and learn and over the years, you start recognizing more nuances of a particular cigar that you did two years, five years, eight years ago. And that works in our benefit and in the benefit of the smoker as well. Mm-hmm. And of course, you have to remember that tobacco crops are not eternal. Right. A tobacco crop will last X number of years, depending on the quantity that was grown and the quantity that was available and suitable for the blend that you were making. So we have to substitute certain tobaccos over the years. 
And how how we do that is very important to maintain the consistency of the quality. Now, when you do the overlap, and this is what we call that, the overlap, when you introduce a new crop of the same tobaccos into a blend, you have to do it over a period of time with quantities that grow as you move into the substituting one tobacco for the other. The final results, we intended to be, take a pitcher's mound in a baseball field and the cigar will be within the pitcher's mound as we overlap new tobaccos into the blend. Okay. But being in that pitcher's mound will make certain changes in what you perceive in your palate as the cigar that you have been smoking for X number of years. And if the consistency and the quality is still there, it enhances the possibility of you receiving more pleasure out of the blend because your your palate will start finding new things, small new things that contribute to the total experience. But I have smoked and I still have cigars from the very first year of 2007. I still have a oh, couple wow. of boxes in the factory. And I have been smoking the old cigars and not so old cigars and the, the cigars that we're making today. And they maintain themselves within the pitcher's mound. Mm-hmm. They're not in right field or left field or behind the catcher in the <laughs> in the in the stands. No, it, it they're still within the the boundaries of the pitching mound. And I, I have noticed certain subtleties that change and are developed through the years. But thankfully the personality of the blend is still there. And the palate, my palate in particular, which has evolved with age, of course, and with smoking and so on, and with knowledge, uh, still find it to be the same custom magna that I started 15 years ago. I, I love this metaphor, not just because I'm a baseball fan, but there's a common nomenclature that we use in society, which is when we talk about things that are comparable, comparable, we say, oh, it's in the ballpark. Yeah. So, ballpark, so you're, the, so you, yeah. So you're yeah, saying the like, is rather large. yes. So you're saying the ballpark's too broad. You've narrowed yeah. it down to like, we're in the, we're in the pitcher's mount. <laughs> exactly. And, okay. that, and that's where, we, that's where we aim to stay in the pitcher's mound. That's, that's a great metaphor. Other, if, if you keep it in the ballpark, you may, may smoke a cigar that's in right field. The next, the next one will be at the shortstop. Yeah. The next will be in the left field. The next one will be uh, uh, in the stands behind the. Cactus. I was going to say the grandstand, the nosebleeds. Yeah, yeah, this, yeah. That's that's that, a lot. It's a broad statement. That, that's yeah. not the idea, Bayer. The idea <laughs> is that the cigars stay within a confined space that is not a, a point. In, 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 in the ballpark, the pitcher's mound, which is a smaller universe where you can 
accept certain movements mm-hmm. within the confines of that limited space. So we talk about these limitations and like you said, over time, crops and everything. Um, and I know that when, so the the next variation of Casa Magna that comes out is the Oscuro, which is of course manufactured in Honduras, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, sir. So are they, are, are Colorado and Oscuro still manufactured in Nicaragua and Honduras? No, sir. Okay. Over the years, uh, for the last four years, we made a decision to start very slowly transferring production to Dominican Republic. Okay. Now, the D Magnus is still being made totally in Nicaragua. Okay. But the Colorado today is now being made totally in Dominican Republic, and the Oscuro also is being made totally in Dominican Republic. The same tobaccos. All we've done is change the factory where they're being made. Instead of being made in Nicaragua and Honduras, they're now being made in Dominican, but using exactly the same tobaccos that were being used from the beginning. And we can do that because we have, thankfully, great relationships with our suppliers of tobacco in Nicaragua and Honduras we're able to get the tobaccos that we need to make the cigars consistent, but in Dominican Republic. Um, I know there's so many questions I could ask about the D Magnus, but here's the, here's the one that I've always wanted to ask you. And since knowing now that you're back, you have your master's in marketing, I'm really wanting, I'm really interested to hear this answer now. Um, <laughs> the D Magnus you named this, the, each different Vitola, very unique Vitolas, by the way, are yes, named indeed. after are named after Roman emperors. Yes. Why? <laughs> My nephew TJ, his master, his major in college was Latin. He's a Latin scholar, mm-hmm. and he speaks Latin. And when we came up with the idea of developing the D Magnus, he decided that they were going to be named after Roman emperors. And I gave him the go ahead. I said, DJ, go for it. Nice. And that's where the names come from. I love it. But the cigar is very much a a family to the Colorado. Mm -hmm. The blend has been tweaked. Uh, filler and binder were tweaked ever so slightly, and the wrapper did change completely. The Colorado wrapper is a uh, shade-grown Criollo 98, where the D Magnus is a sun-grown Criollo 98 wrapper. Oh, okay, interesting. See, this is the time in the history the, 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 during the timeline where I, I, f- I think it's really important to note this. Um, it felt like Quesada started having a lot more, I guess, took a lot more liberty. And I, I don't want to say fun, but you guys showed the fun that you could have with cigars, the unique Vitolas and everything. And then another project comes in. I want to come back to Casa Magna for a second because they, they kind of, the last couple of years, we've obviously expanded on that. But like the unique Vitolas and the D Magnus. And then you also come out with a brand new project which at the time was 
at now it probably doesn't seem very weird or or off kilter but at the time it was it was it was a it was an interesting turn you guys created Oktoberfest uh and yeah. what what uh I, I I've heard I've heard great stories about this uh with you and TJ talking about this project and everything particularly the way it was packaged um when when uh y'all were coming up with a blend to pair with Marson beer like what what kind of went into this 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 decision to take to take uh to take this leap into beer pairing if you will well this was again an idea that came uh to make a cigar to pair with the Marsden style beers and the the difficulty here was and the hardship of this project was we had to drink a, a pot full of beer <laughs> and smoke a, and smoke a lot of cigars to pair what we were blending with the Marsden style beers so we for about 7 months we drank a pot full of beer and we smoked a lot of cigars to come up with this uh, project and it was a lot of suffering but we survived <laughs> and <laughs> and Oktoberfest came about uh, and then the funny part about all this was that and this was TJ TJ and I had a, a falling out on, on this he wanted to put two beer mugs on the front panel of the box. Mm-hmm. And I told him that that was going to happen over my dead body. <laughs> well, the young ones decided that my dead body was fine. So they did put the beer mug on the box. And my my uh, uh, neg- negativity about it was not taken into account so they did they did walk over my dead body and put the beer mugs in. but the young ones again i i'm very thankful to my ancestors my father my uncle uh who were the ones that mentored me and tutored me they always and, and my brother as well they always gave us the opportunity to experiment and they would tell us do whatever you want, and if it's successful, that's your job. And if it's not successful, learn and move on. Mm-hmm. And I've, I, I gave that opportunity to the young ones when they came to work with me. I said, hey, experiment, play, and we'll see what happens. If you fail, learn and move on. And thankfully, they haven't failed yet, thankfully. I, I love the project. I still have a box of the Bayern um, hanging out in my humidor. Um, that's that hasn't been opened yet. I I, lo- I loved I loved that Vitola, and uh, I, I enjoy that. I enjoy that blend. I think it's I think it's safe to say it's probably one of the most underrated uh, blends in your portfolio, which is kind of saying something considering how successful it's been for you. But I think it's one of the well, most underrated. Remember, it, it, it's a seasonal c- cigar. Mm-hmm. It comes out. It comes out in late August or early September, and by December it's done. Mm-hmm. So it only lasts four months, right? Uh, because of the, the the beers. So Oktoberfest runs from from late August or early September to December. That's it. And then for the next eight months, 
there are no Oktoberfests except what's left in the stores, uh, which usually is not a whole lot, thank- thankfully. I just wrapped up my uh, Liga FA. Um, and so I have the 40th anniversary, the Selección España, the Casa Magna Connecticut, and the Colorado. Uh, what would you like me to smoke next? Uh, let's see. I would tell you to go to the Connecticut. Okay. Because I'm, I'm sure that's the one you haven't really smoked a whole lot of. Yeah, that's definitely fair to say. It being, it, it being the newest one and all. This is my first Robusto, actually. That's how that's how few I've had. This is my first Colorado, uh, excuse me, Casa Magna Connecticut Robusto. This is my first one. So I've had other Vitolas. I, have, I happen to have one with me. So I'll join you. Wonderful. So um, so before we get to the this the the last two years of Casa Magna, um, there was another project. We talked about the end of the boom and uh, being ninety eight ninety nine. But in nineteen ninety seven, you put you find you have some tobacco that you feel is worthwhile of putting it away, and you put away some 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 prized tobacco in 97 and that yes, becomes sir. that becomes a pretty incredible project for you all uh the reserva um yeah and i i go back to our point in the conversation when you talk about how you know when pro cigar was formed how you guys weren't going to compromise on quality you weren't going to compromise on price and that's something that quesada has always done and maintained is that the prices have been very reasonable um, there's never been anything outlandish and I'm not about to say that the reserve is outlandish. It's not, but it was a step up in terms of price, but it was for a reason. I mean, this was very well-aged tobacco that had been, uh, sitting around for over a decade when you guys finally put it to some use and everything, but talk about how special this project was for you all. Well, when the Casada 35 came out. And I don't know if you remember the 35. I do. Too young, fan- I'm sure. No, I know. I do. It was fantastic. I remember that cigar. Well, when that cigar came out, there were two blends competing for that for that cigar. Uh, the, the young ones decided to make a blend. And I made a blend. And their blend was called Godiva. And my blend was called Mune. Mune is a Dominican chocolate that doesn't compare to Godiva chocolate at all. So immediately in the names of the blends, there was a huge difference in prestige, if you want to call it that. So when the final decision came to which blend was going to be the Casada 35, the young ones over overruled me and they put their blend on the market. And it was a a huge success. Uh, We had a very good uh, outing with it. But when it came time for the Casada Reserva, I told them, I don't even want you to get involved in this project. This is going to be my project because I'm using tobacco from 1997 that I have saved. So this is going to be my blend. Nice. And I made the blend for that one using that tobacco. And 
it's still one of my go-to cigars today. And I, in my palate, I find it to be a very, very rich and pleasurable cigar. It is. With a little intensity as well. It, it, it has a little personality to it. Oh, absolutely. Uh, nothing, nothing to make your stomach upset or make you sweat, but enough to, to re make you realize that you're smoking a cigar that has a little presence, a little more intensity in the palate. Oh, definitely. The, uh, what, it, it, I, what I think is really special about the Reserva is the, the variations that came with it. And um, I, I, I've heard the story from you before. It's interesting. The barber pole uh, you weren't too keen on. Um, you're chuckling now. Yeah, I, yeah, I know you re remember, remember this. I've, I've heard the story uh, from a couple of interviews that I've heard you give before. Uh, uh, the word gimmick comes to mind um, is, is, yeah. is why you've never done one before. But um, again, this was another one of the, the, uh, the youngins, right? As you put it, the young ones kind of uh, started. Behind my back, as a matter of fact. Yeah. Oh, even behind your back. Okay. Oh, yeah. Um, so uh, I, from what I understand, you actually did. You, you went onto the factory floor and you saw barber poles being made on your factory floor and you were like, what is this? What's going on? <laughs> Genuine exactly. Shock. And I took one to my office and I, I smoked it and I came back out and said, keep making it because these are, these are really good. But I was I was dead I was dead against it, but I was convinced by what they had made that it was really a worthwhile project. I confess it's been a number so, of years since I've had one, but gosh, they were so good. They were so good. Well, um, they're still available, so you'll still find them. I need I need to find some. They were so good. It's been a long time since I've had one. Definitely need to, to find it. We, you mentioned the 35th anniversary. Now, those are gone, correct? Those are no longer available. Uh, no, those were gone. Uh, gosh, uh, IPCPR or RTDA back then, we sold everything that we made. We sold there, and that was it. I had one. I found one in the wild years later. Um, that was the last one I smoked. It was... Um, can't remember the year now, but I, I couldn't believe it when I found it. I was like, I grabbed it. It was one of those lone boxes. It was just kind of in the corner. It was the last one in the box. I saw it was like 35th. Oh my gosh. Grabbed it, smoked it. Really enjoyable. But one of, this is actually my favorite. The brand that I'm about to talk about is actually my favorite brand um, that, that you've, that you've ever made. And that's saying something because I've enjoyed, I think we've made it clear over our conversation this evening or morning for you. Um, just how much I've enjoyed your cigars over the years, but my favorite cigar blend and brand that you ever created was the 40th anniversary. Um, I, I love that blend and I love, and I'm very, I'm very, I'm a big Vitola snob. I like a lot of, when, when I find a Vitola in a specific blend, that's the one I usually go to the 40th anniversary for me smokes. Fantastic. In every single Vitola, uh, even in that the the box pressed uh, Salomon, which is yeah. that was such a unique project. What? How did you guys come up with that concept? The box pressed Salomon. As Oktoberfest took a lot of beer to come to fruition, the Salomon took a lot of whiskey. <laughs> 
Yeah, because we were sitting and having uh, scotch, single malts, and talking about the new size for the 40th. And a Salomon came as as the next size. And one of the young ones said, why don't we press the Salomon? And at the time he suggested that, we had had a couple of drinks already, so we were all in a happy mood. He said, sure, why not? Give it a try. So we pressed some more scotch, and we started smoking them and looking at them, and we were sort of uh, enthused by the idea. Now, whether it was the whiskey or whether it was our supposed knowledge of the uh, cigar industry, I don't know. But in the end, we decided to press the Salomon, and that's how, that's how it came about. Such a unique shape and such a, a bizarre concept, and it works so well. It was just crazy. Uh, when I first saw and by, it, and by the way, Bear, we have registered that the size as uh, we patented the size. Oh, we own the we own the patent on that size. Wow. Okay, that's cool. So we could we could very well see it again somewhere else, not just with the fortieth. Yes, sir. Wonderful. That's well, good news. It, 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 it may happen again. Yes. I heard <laughs> we uh, I have one available to smoke tonight, as, as, as we mentioned earlier. Um, but I've heard, you know, the I think the brand that kind of gain that has um, a lot of a lot of people speak very uh fondly and very passionately about it and in an almost they almost kind of look back at it in a more of a nostalgic sense even though it's a newer brand and that's the selection espana a lot of people compare that cigar to old world cubans the way that they used to smoke um and um i've never been comfortable with that comparison mostly because i didn't smoke a lot of old world cubans but two i i think it's Insulting such a strong word, Manola, so forgive me. I feel like it's a little bit a little bit derogatory because I don't think that that's necessarily what manufacturers go for when they try to create a blend. They're not going for something Cuban-esque. I don't know. But when you all created the Espana, and I know it was made specifically for the Spanish market initially, what what was the motivation or what were you what were you going for, so to speak? Well, the idea was, and we were already uh, selling Casa Magna in Spain, but we noticed that Spain was a very human market. The smokers in Spain were very entrenched in Cuban cigars. So when we made the Espana, we decided to make a cigar to compete with the Cuban cigars more or less in their flavor profile. Casa Magna, when it came into Spain, was rather a, a very intense cigar. And the Cubans at the time, and I'm talking about 15 years ago, 
the Cubans at the time were not as intense as the Nicaraguan cigars were and are today. So we blended that cigar, the España, to sort of fall into the flavor profile of the Cuban brands that were being sold in Spain. It wasn't meant to be Cubanesque. It wasn't meant to be a reminder of what Cuba was 30, 40, 50 years ago. It was basically a cigar to compete in the flavor profiles of the Cuban cigars available in the market at the time. I've really enjoyed that. Um, we talked about the, f- the fun aspect of it, the Vitolas of the D Magnus, the box press Salomon, and then in the Espana, the coup d'etat, you know, the Maltov cocktail. I thought it was yeah. interesting. Where, where, did, where did that come from? That, again, uh, it took a little bit of a socializing to come up with those with the howitzer and the dagger and the and the Molotov cocktail. And the Molotov, the howitzer was just a big ring gauge to re- resemble a howitzer. The dagger was a very long sort of lancero mm-hmm. that, that would look like a dagger. But the Molotov had to have more or less the shape of a Molotov cocktail. So that took a little doing to make the cigar resemble uh, a Molotov cocktail. And that was fun too. That was uh, interesting and, and a, a fun development of a cigar. I, I, I think it's 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 really interesting to see the the evolution of some of this stuff that's kind of come like, you know, you know, it, it the there's this the seriousness of intent that comes with the initial release of these cigars, and then you kind of take license with it and have fun with it. Um and uh and it shows that you're while you're very serious about making cigars and making blends and quality and consistency that we've talked about, but you're not afraid to have a little fun too, you know, with it. And share with people like this is supposed to be fun this is supposed to be exciting and 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 attention grabbing and and without but without compromising and i think that's important oh indeed indeed if 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 we don't have fun then it it becomes a nine-to-five job and that's not the idea tobacco is not a nine-to-five situation tobacco is a 24 7 situation so you have to you have to find ways to enjoy yourself other than playing with the tobacco. So fun, yes, indeed. Awesome. And you learn you learn fun things as well. I remember when we were doing the stripping for the Puerto Rican tobacco and the fermentation as well. The first bulk that I made, when I turned it, it smelled like horse urine and i'm sitting there looking smelling this and saying i i I ruined a whole bulk of puerto rican tobacco that's not mine Uh, a spanish gentleman that had worked for us in cuba was helping mr fink with the projects that he was doing and he was helping me with the stripping of the broadleaf and the Puerto Rican. So I called him and I said, 
Severiano, this bulb smells like horse urine. And he says, if it didn't smell like horse urine, you weren't doing it right. That's the way it's supposed to smell. <laughs> and you're doing, you're doing a great job. So oh, man. Okay. So, <laughs> so these are things that you learn and you go, hello, well, well yeah, okay. There you go. And it was a great taste. It's a great, well, it was because it's no longer being grown. Great, great blending tobacco, great tasting tobacco, but in the box, when you turn them, it smelled like oh, urine. Oh, man, I bet the Polones are, like, the, those room, the fermentation rooms are already so potent, right, with the ammonia and everything, like that, that overwhelming, I can't imagine mixing in horse urine into that, too. My God, that must have been potent. Oh, and, man. And it, it, it blew my mind. I said, what did I do wrong here? <laughs> and and, and c quite the opposite. I was doing the right thing. So there <laughs> you go. Wow. Um, I just have a couple more questions, Manolo, before we conclude our evening. And and before I get we get into the home stretch here a little bit, I do. I, I, I would be remiss in, in thanking you so much. Uh, for those of us who are joining us now, Manolo is joining us uh from spain where it's you know coming up on on six o'clock in the morning so he started very early with us um it is an honor manolo thank you so much before we finish our last few questions here i i, I cannot believe um how special my 250th take is that you got up so early to to make this happen and and i i'm so grateful to you so thank you so much bear Again, my pleasure. Um, yeah, so the, um, the, I want to go back to just bringing Raquel back into the conversation a little bit. You know, this this next generation, she started with you in the late 90s, early 2000s, as she was the first member of the next generation to come in. And she's she's still around uh, and still working with you in the, in, in, in the cigar industry and everything. What, what... What does that, I mean, as a father, I mean, I imagine that that brings you so much joy. Um, but as, but as a, as a, as a next generation yourself, seeing it being able to be continued onto an, at least one more generation, what, what does that mean to the family and the legacy that, that your, the name Quesada has held over the decades? Well, precisely, it's, it's been the, what, we're not the owners of the company. We are the caretakers of the company. And the previous generations were the taker, caretakers of, for the next generation and on down the line. So I'm the fourth generation and now I'm passing it on to the fifth generation, which is Raquel. And hopefully a sixth generation will come around and maybe they'll be interested, interested in coming about. But it's always been a family company. So family, we try to keep everything within the confines of the family and generations become a part of, uh, a part of the program. And if there's a next generation, you have to take care of the business so the next generation can enjoy it and continue it. So we're basically caretakers. And we do our best and we try our damnest to maintain it 
to see it and, and pass it on. What uh, I, what is some of the best lessons that you've taught her that you see her utilizing and executing on a daily basis? Well, thankfully, all the young ones that I've had came to me with humility. They were willing to go through difficult trainings uh, and learn and experiment. Uh, so that's one of the things that I am proud of, of all the young ones that I've had, and Raquel, of course. Raquel is still very humble. She still asks a lot of questions and still has a lot of conversations about what's happening and, and how to go about it. Uh, always, I've always instilled in all of them that we have to be proud of what we're doing and we have to be careful of what we're doing. Again, going back to consistency mm -hmm. and being consistent with quality. And they, Raquel has taken that to heart and she has really fallen into one thing that I have not been able to get her uh, is punctuality. And I've tried. <laughs> I, yeah, that's one of the other things that I was taught from an early age. Being punctual is essential, but Raquel takes that with a little liberty every once in a while. So that one, I, had, I still haven't been able to instill that totally into her, but I'm still working on it. But she has, she has really, well, Raquel is uh, one of the blenders in the, in the team. Oh. She is, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She's been involved in blending, gosh, since the early 2000s. Oh, wow, okay. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, a story that I, that I tell consistently, when the Cubano Limitado came out, the Fonseca Cubano Limitado came out, I had made the blend. And I had told Raquel, who was in charge of production at the time, I said, start making the cigars because the blend's already done. So she comes into my office, puts a cigar on my desk, and runs out. I take the cigar, I light it up, and she's taken the blend that I had made for the Cubano Limitado and tweaked it ever so slightly in a different direction. So I call her back up to my office, she comes in sideways because she thinks I'm going to strangle her. And I said, you changed my blend. And she goes, yes, Dad, I, I, I did. And I told her, your blend is better. Go with it and start making the cigars. Oh, wow. And on every box of the Cubano Limitado, it says, by Raquel and Manuel Casada. She was the one that came up with the final blend for that cigar. So from that time on, she's been involved in blending uh, and all the projects that we have made in the Oktoberfest in the, uh, in, in the 40th, in the Connecticut Casa Magna, in, the, in all the projects, she has been an instrumental part of the blending process. 
This might be a little unfair to ask of you to answer for her, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Do you think that was her right. moment? Do you think that was the, do you think that was the, the pinnacle moment for her that she, this was, this was meant for her? Indeed, indeed. And that she took, that she dared to change my blend and bring it to me and show it to me, prove to me that she, that she was really involved and passionate about the business. And from that moment on, I had total trust in her palate and in her way of developing things to today. I, I think it's important to mesh the two things that you're talking about here, because at one point, you were, a moment ago, you were talking about being a caretaker, right? And being careful. But being careful and being a caretaker doesn't mean without risk and without oh, challenge. And of course. For her to dare, like as you said, for her to dare to challenge her father on something, but do it in a careful way, proved to be ultimately successful and and the defining moment of, of, of her career in tobacco. Well, she didn't come to me and said, your blend is all wrong here. Try this, this is better. No, no, she just came and put a cigar in my desk and walked <laughs> out. And she was, a, she was hoping that, that I would be amenable to her blend and i was so that defined her immediately and gave her a, a lot more confidence in what she was doing of course all right well we'll just have a couple like i said we have a couple more questions so we'll go ahead and wrap up our evening with these questions and this second to last question of course is our asylum moment which of course is brought to you by asylum cigars Refuge is more than just a physical place. It can be a state of mind. Some of life's greatest reflections can be found in our own personal asylum. Moments like these were made for asylum cigars. So light up an asylum and choose your refuge. Before we got started tonight, Manolo, I was talking to you about this segment specifically. And, and I've, you've, as we've talked about, uh, over, a cent, over half a century in working in tobacco, over half a century in manufacturing cigars, uh, it's safe to say thousands upon thousands of cigars you've smoked. And I know that you've had the opportunity to have a, several of these moments, but what's a moment that comes to mind where it was just you and the cigar? No one was around. It wasn't an event. It wasn't community driven like we love and love about this industry so much. It was just you and the cigar. What, what, what's one of those moments that comes to mind and why was it so special? And if you can recall, what were you smoking? In 1980, I was asked to make cigars for the European market using 100% Cuban tobacco. And the Cuban tobacco was sent to me from Europe. And we made 100% Cuban tobacco cigars for a customer in Europe. As you know, tobacco shrinks. There's a shrinkage involved in tobacco. So I decided to help the shrinkage by taking some pounds of that tobacco for myself. And I made a blend of Dominican and Cuban tobacco 
And to me, that was the best cigar that I have ever blended in my life. And when I smoked that, it was a revelation how compatible these two tobaccos were and how great a smoke they were able to produce. Wow. Do you, do you and of still, course, I haven't had the chance. I haven't had the chance to do that again because the, I haven't come up with Cuban tobacco again. Oh, that was my next question. Dang it! <laughs> so, do you do you still have any like in your collection somewhere? No, 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 no. no Long gone. Un- unfortunately, the Cubans opposed the making of the cigars in Dominican with with 100% Cuban tobacco, and in a legal battle. The European customers were told not to make more of those products. So the project stopped and I don't have any more of that tobacco available with me. But that was again, 1980, that was 40, 43 years ago. Wow. Unbelievable. Wow. But it, 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 it gives you an idea of what can be possible if and ever uh, we in the industry are able to get uh, to be of a, to have availability of Cuban tobaccos because blending with Cuban, Dominican and Nicaraguan, we could make cigars that would be amazing smokes. Mm. I'm looking forward to the day, Manolo. I'm looking forward to the day. Now, well, I don't, I don't have many days left, so I hope I, I hope I'll be around to see <laughs> that. But I don't, I don't have that many days left. Um, you've got you've got a few more, and with your with your, I know with your hunger and quest for uh, the cigar that, that we were talking about at the beginning of the show. If you get that opportunity again, I know it'll be one to remember for sure. So that was our asylum moment which of course refuge is more than just a physical place. It can be a state of mind. Some of life's greatest reflections can be found in our own personal asylum, light up an asylum and choose your refuge. Come to our final question of the night, Manolo. And again, I thank you so much for this opportunity to speak with you on this milestone of show for myself. Um, It's been an honor, uh, truly. Um, And uh, I can't thank you enough. Uh, this is a little bit of a fun question, but I want to confirm something before I ask it. So I heard a while ago that you really enjoy films, but particularly classics. And your some of your three of your favorite films, if I'm not mistaken, please tell me if I'm wrong. Three of your favorite films are Casablanca, Gone with the Wind, and The Princess Bride. Is this correct? Oh, totally correct. Three of my favorite. Uh, Casablanca probably is probably one of my absolute favorite uh, movies of all time. I absolutely love that film, um, but I love all three. Um, so here's here's the question. Uh, you know, so it is our Dunbarton Tobacco and Trust Curveball segment. Fastballs or curveballs, it doesn't matter since the company's inception. Steve Saka has been knocking them out of the park seven consecutive years in the consensus top three. Congratulations to our good friend, Mr. Steve Saka. So, uh, Here's the question, Manolo. Is Manolo Casada more like Richard Blaine of Casablanca, Rhett Butler of Gone with the Wind, or Wesley, a.k.a. the Dread Pride Roberts of The Princess Bride, and why? 
To tell you the truth, the answer to that question is a mixture of all three. Okay. And I'll tell you why. Because of my mixed origins, some days I'll wake up uh, and I'll be a Cuban. Some days I'll wake up, I'll be a Spaniard. Some days I'll wake up and I'll be a, a Dominican. And most of the days I'll wake up and I'll be an American. So depending on how I wake up and who I am that day, I will reflect or I will project uh, uh, an image of either of the three characters that you mentioned. So it's a mixture of all three. I cannot say that I am consistently just one character throughout my my days in life. I have different moments and different uh, points of view depending depending on which is heavier that day or that week uh, of in my moment because of my background. That's awesome. I um, I know it's impossible for you to pick one of the films as their favorite. Do you have a favorite character of those three? Actually, the three main characters of that Red Butler and the Drip Pirate Roberts and Harry of Harry's Bar, uh, the three are outstanding characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the Princess Bride holds a... a a very special place in my heart. It is a, a, a movie that I have enjoyed immensely, though I do not like the producer or the director of the film, but that's another story. <laughs> uh, but The Princess Bride holds a very dear place in my heart. And the Private Roberts is a character that I enjoy a whole lot, as I enjoy Inigo Montoya as well. Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, Inigo Montoya is probably my favorite f- character from that film. Um, um, but I love, I love Wes, I love Carrie Elwes's character, the, the Dread Pirate Roberts, Wesley. I, I, I that, that movie is just so, that movie is incredible for so many reasons. It's, 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 it's timeless. And even though it's, it's certainly not as old as the other two. Um, but it's still like, it's, it's, it's definitely, it, it is a classic. It is, in, it's in that same, that same genre, I think, because of just because of the style in which it was made and everything. And it's, it's really cool how it's, uh, transcended a lot of generations, um, of, of movie fans and everything. Um, but, uh, that's, that's awesome. Um, well, Manola, I, I cannot, again, I can't thank you enough for your time this evening. This was absolutely wonderful to speak with you and, and, uh, and, uh, I'm looking forward to another conversation with you as well. Will you be at PCA this year? Oh, quite so. Yes, sir. Wonderful. Wonderful. <laughs> Look forward to seeing you again there and, uh, sharing some great cigars and some more great stories with you and, uh, and great conversation as always. So, um, I wanted to thank you again for your time and, uh, I wanted to thank our audience as well for staying up late with us and uh, for anyone in, in the country of Spain who's up with us along with you getting up early too as well. Uh, it's been <laughs> wonderful as well. So thank you so much for your time this morning. Um, I hope you have a fantastic Monday um, and uh, I hope everyone else has a fantastic Monday as well. Your Monday is starting obviously a lot sooner than ours because it already has started. Um, <laughs> but um, again, Manola, thank you. Thank you for this opportunity. 
forbear. It's a two-way road. Thank you as well for having having me on your fabulous show. And, and it has also been an honor to be on your show. Thank you. It is the legend Manola Casada here with me on our 250th take. Thank you to our audience for joining us tonight. You can check out our YouTube channel, Elos Fumar, hit the subscribe button. And you can also check out wherever, if you happen to be listening to us on podcasts later, wherever you listen to podcasts, whether that be on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Podbean, or wherever you listen to podcasts, including iHeartRadio, be sure you download, subscribe, and review. If you already are a subscriber, hey, do me a favor, unsubscribe but then hit resubscribe because that really helps my numbers so that I can get great guests like Manolo anytime that I want. So uh, do that for me. Uh, as always, we broadcast live every Sunday um, from our Facebook page, Elosu Fumar, and that's where we are right now. And uh, you can join us uh, next Sunday as well. We've got a great list of guests coming up. You can tune into our Facebook page, hit the like button, and you can see our calendar of upcoming events and, and guests and great stuff. So you definitely want to check that out. Um, but for everyone out there, this was our milestone take, 250th take with the legend himself, Mr. Manola Casada. It was my pleasure. My name is Barry Duplissi, as always, live from the Alec Bradley Lone Star Studio of Azle, Texas. Again, once again, he is the legend, Manola Casada. I'm Barry Duplissi, and guess what, everybody? We'll see you next time. Thank you.